0: Two Barclays analysts. One hot topic. All sides explored. This is the Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode of The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melli. I'm the co-head of research at Barclays, and I'm joined by Marvin Barth our head of FX and EM Macro Research. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here.
0: In this edition, we look at the growing global trade tensions and examine the short and long-term consequences of America's more aggressive stance on trade. Although President Trump campaigned on a tough stance on trade, his initial efforts were focused elsewhere. Renegotiating NAFTA was happening largely in the background, but that was really the only activity on trade. That started to change earlier this year. The first tariffs on China were announced in January. Those were on solar panels and washing machines. Then in March, the administration announced tariffs on steel and aluminum. Since then, the pace has quickened, with both new tariffs imposed by the U.S. and new retaliatory tariffs imposed on the U.S. by its major trading partners. The U.S. now seems to be in a tit-for-tat cycle of tariffs, with China, Mexico, Canada, and Europe with new activity almost every week. At the time of this recording, the U.S. just announced tariffs on an additional $200 billion of Chinese goods. Before we debate the merits of starting a trade war, I think it's worth laying some groundwork. First, President Trump is very focused on the size of the U.S. trade deficit, which he blames on a series of quote-unquote bad deals. The U.S. does run a large trade deficit. It's currently over $500 billion a year. But is the U.S. on the wrong side of its trade agreements?
1: Well, Jeff, let's start with one point where I think the president clearly is correct. And that is that the U.S. does face broadly unbalanced terms of trade with its trading partners. So if you look uh, at the weighted average tariffs that the U.S. applies to its trading partners and the corresponding weighted average tariff that they apply to the U.S., it's clearly the case that among virtually all countries, uh, the U.S. faces higher tariffs than it applies to its trading partners. I, I think a great example of this was actually in uh, Bank of England uh, Governor Mark Carney's speech last week. He didn't actually note this, but he put this in in a table that showed this quite clearly. The weighted average tariff on, uh, that the U.S. would apply to China in the new uh, uh, announced tariffs would be 4.5%. That's still less than half of what the weighted average tariff China applies to the U.S. currently before there's any sign of a trade war. And I think perhaps even more gallingly, if you look across U.S. trading partners, with the exception of those for which the U.S. has free trade uh, agreements with, say NAFTA, um, Singapore, Australia... In all other cases, you find that the tariffs that U.S. trading partners apply on average to it are higher than their tariffs in general to their other trading partners.
0: So I don't think it's exactly fair to assert that those asymmetric trade terms are fully responsible for the U.S. trade deficit. I'm not sure that we can link those so explicitly. As the world's reserve currency, I'd argue – the U.S. should expect a trade deficit even with perfectly balanced agreements. It's also the case that with large fiscal deficits, which, by the way, the latest uh, tax deal has made even larger, um, one might expect to ha- to be running a trade deficit.
1: No, it's absolutely the case. The, 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 you're, you're, you're right on that, that – tariffs don't directly lead to these uh, external imbalances. Those are about saving, fundamental savings and investment imbalances within economies and exactly to your point, the U.S. is dissaving at a greater rate now with this fiscal expansion and that's going to actually move in the opposite direction of the one that the president uh, is, is advocating. But it is clear that unbalanced terms of trade do create a welfare loss, that the higher weighted average tariff that other countries apply to the U.S. relative to what it applies to other countries is a welfare loss that falls more on U.S. consumers and businesses than it does on its foreign trading partners and really does foster a sense of unfairness in trade that I think is part of what's fueling the president's agenda.
0: Now, there are a lot of anecdotes being thrown around regarding how the U.S. or its trading partners tax specific goods. There's been news reports about how the U.S. taxes trucks versus how Europe taxes cars, or whether the U.S. or Canada does more to subsidize or protect their respective dairy industries. Depending on the example, uh, it could make the U.S. look either much more or much less aggressive on trade than its trading partners. Also, President Trump emphasizes the goods deficit, probably uh, as sort of a pay-in to his uh, base, which is very focused on manufacturing. But the U.S. actually runs a surplus in trade and services, which somewhat reduces the overall trade deficit.
1: Yeah, services are clearly uh, an area in which the U.S. has a comparative advantage. Uh, It does do well there. It runs a, a, a service Uh, Surplus versus almost every country. That doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't face barriers there. Um, One of the problems with services is it's actually really hard for us to measure tariffs or barriers to services. They tend to be non-tariff barriers in that case. And there certainly are complaints on both sides. Uh, The U.S. does maintain that it is um, less well-treated on services, but the case is a lot less clear than it is with tariffs. But even in the case of Tariffs on goods. I think it's uh, a, a mistake to focus on individual cases. There are lots of, you know, single protected industries in different countries. I think the the broader picture here is that overall, when you look at average tariffs, either on a simple basis or on a weighted average basis, uh, it is the case that in goods trade, where we can measure these things, the U.S. does generally face unfavorable terms of trade.
0: Okay, let's transition to what a trade war might look like. At the moment, the U.S. seems to be battling on multiple fronts. On the one hand, China has been the country that's been most singled out for new tariffs. On the other, we've got NAFTA being renegotiated, and trade with Europe has also been in the spotlight. We could see a couple different scenarios. One, tensions could simultaneously escalate with all of our major trading partners into a full-blown global trade war. Or we could see a lot of the noise on other trading partners die down, and we could become much more focused on trade with China. Which one of those is more likely might actually depend on who blinks first, Europe or China. And on its face, it looks to me like China might be the more likely to concede to U.S. demands for more balanced trade agreements. First, the absolute size of the trade deficit, and then by extension, just the limited amount of goods that the U.S. actually exports to China suggests China has less leverage. The U.S. exports over twice as much to Europe as it does to China, so Europe has a lot more levers to pull. Uh, That suggests to me that even if China does give some ground, the other major trading partners of the U.S. are much less likely to, and we should be preparing for a broad-based trade war if these tensions continue to escalate.
1: Well, I think that it's not entirely clear to me that China's the one that is more likely to back down here. Uh, I mean, one of your first points there was that the president has opened up a multi-front war here um, that actually has reduced his ability to use European concerns about Chinese trade against them as well to effectively gang up and, and, and attack one specific problem. The second is this point about uh, you know the reciprocity of volumes of trade uh, with Europe that actually trade with Europe is much less imbalanced. From a game theoretic standpoint, that actually means both sides have a great deal of credible leverage on each other. And so their incentives on both sides to come to an agreement are stronger than in the case where you have an imbalance there. And it's, and finally, there's the point that Europe is actually in a weaker position economically. They're less um, able to withstand a trade war at this time, whereas I think China is in a much better p- position uh, to do so. Uh, and then there's also this, this angle that China uh, produces a tremendous amount of American uh, goods. So U.S. firms um, may not be exporting as much to China, but they're sure producing a lot there. And the ability for China to use as it has started to threaten qualitative measures, whatever that means, to potentially disrupt U.S. supply chains is actually much more significant than I think people might give it credit for.
0: These qualitative measures have been in the news, and uh, I don't think investors know quite what to make of them. In some cases, we've heard things like slowing down the uh, the border process on certain U.S. agricultural goods, for example, which might, uh, you know, uh, risk I don't know spoilage or or delays to market. Um, there's talk of environmental. Uh, at, you know, inspections on U.S.-owned plants that are operating in China. Uh, but at some level, China's shooting itself in the foot with these sort of measures. These are plants that employ Chinese people. How real is that threat?
1: Well, I, I think that that threat is, as you put it, one that we can't really quantify because we don't know exactly what types of measures they might do. Um, it is also the case while uh, China is in a much stronger economic position. Uh, They are also managing their own internal transitions in terms of shifting from a more investment-led economy to a more consumer-led economy. And their ability to shoot themselves in the foot in specific industries may be uh, more difficult uh, as a result. But we just don't know how serious each side is. And I think that gets back to your earlier uh, point about the imbalance of trade here and, we- and whether that's actually the right metric to think about leverage here is that it's not clear the battle here is really about tariffs as much as it is about technology and issues like that, which I think we'd like to get into a little bit more later.
0: Yeah, sure. So before we get to that, let's talk about the wisdom of purposefully escalating trade tensions, the U.S. faces potentially significant economic costs to a trade war. They could come in terms of output, inflation, corporate profitability. This could be the somewhat awaited catalyst to tip this extended cycle into recession, particularly since the Fed is already well into a hiking cycle. So why is Trump provoking these trade tensions now?
1: Well, let me put it in short. I think actually in some ways you could say this is actually the best time to to do it um, in the sense that the U.S. economy is actually uh, doing extraordinarily well right now. Our tracking estimate for U.S. GDP uh, in the second quarter is running at 5%. That's before the full fiscal effects start to happen. You've got a giant fiscal impulse coming through the system, this provides a tremendous amount of cushion to effectively absorb some short-term pain associated with what the Trump administration and maybe actually, I think, underlying trends or shifts in incentives in the U.S. would suggest would be longer-run gains. So let me, let me challenge you on that a bit because I think
0: we – Uh, should put some numbers around just how big these short-term costs might be. Uh, Let's start with inflation. Trade tensions uh, could easily raise inflation. Tariffs obviously raise costs of goods. Um, That could be disruptive at this point of the cycle. The Fed is already very much on the lookout for any sign that tight labor markets are causing the economy to heat up. And although, in principle, the Fed might look through a tariff-sparked round of inflation, I think it would be very difficult to disentangle what's coming from tariffs versus what's coming from the natural state of the economy, which, as you mentioned, is growing um, uh, robustly and and labor markets are are, are very tight. So mechanically, we can estimate how much inflation could rise. You start with how much the U.S. imports. About 6% of the U.S. consumption basket comes from imports. It's a pretty small number, reflecting that the U.S., is still a relatively closed economy, but nonetheless, a 10% broad tariff on all imports translates to something like 60 basis points of inflation. If you're right and China ends up being the focus of continued trade tensions, you could do a similar calculation on something like a 25% tariff on all Chinese goods. That translates to something like 30 basis points of inflation. We could similarly estimate a growth shock And our economists get numbers anywhere from three quarters of a point to a point and a half negative growth shock from increased trade tensions. That's a lot in an economy that has only averaged 2% growth since the crisis. We're talking about simultaneously raising prices and reducing growth, which is another way of saying stagflation. We have a really good thing going right now. This is one of the longest expansions ever. Why risk disrupting that now?
1: Well, I think to some extent, you know, those estimates—they're—they're they're good back-of-the-envelope estimates, and I think they're useful for framing the potential effects. Uh, but we need to remember that they probably overestimate in some certain sense. So think about in inflation, um, which is ultimately the sort of source of the growth shock here, right? That you see a shift in in costs that uh, uh, affects uh, consumers and businesses' decisions to go out and consume and invest. Well. Inflation is also going to be modulated by foreign exchange effects. So if you think about theoretically, um, if a country raises tariffs, i.e. raising the cost of imported goods, um, which is the pass-through calculation you d- just did, uh, typically the marshall learner effects, as they're called, would suggest that their exchange rate should appreciate to offset it. So you actually get um, an offsetting exchange rate effect. Now, that's going to uh, you know, have a negative impact on exports uh, but not of the same order in terms of, of growth. Um, the other uh, issue out there is that we're operating in a world where corporations have unprecedented margins and the uh, ability to absorb uh, shocks uh, through their, their margins. And we've actually seen that uh, – a real-life example of that in the UK recently. You know, With the uh, depreciation of, of sterling following Brexit, there was far less inflation passed through than uh, a lot of economists – had anticipated because firms did compress their margin to accept the the fact that they couldn't pass it through I- I- immediately. And that gets to the growth point, which is that ultimately, even if they do pass it through, that's going to be extended over a, a period of maybe uh, a year, 18 months, two years, rather than as a single sharp shock to the market.
0: So it is true that margins are high. Certainly, corporate profits as a percent of GDP in the U.S. is very elevated, close to historical highs. There's not as much evidence about Asia and Europe, which is obviously uh, the companies that are importing to the U.S., but what evidence does exist suggests margins are elevated uh, in those regions as well. But whether or not they contract— depends to a certain extent on why margins are high in the first place. If margins are high because companies have accumulated market power, potentially because industries have become more concentrated over time, uh, then that suggests that that pricing power that goes along with concentration means companies could pass through a lot of the uh, tariffs onto their end consumers and. suggests that margins may not compress at all. But even if margins do compress, that suggests that the equity market falls. So either inflation goes up or the stock market goes down, and it's actually somewhat debatable which of those could be more disruptive for the US economy. I'd also point out that that mechanical calculation I went through could actually be an underestimate of inflation. Think of China as a shadow competitor to a huge amount of global production. We think that overcapacity in China has been probably the biggest disinflationary force over the last 20 years. A price shock of the magnitude of 15, 20, 25% on uh, China-produced goods could be just the excuse that a whole host of global producers are looking for to start raising prices. And so that could effectively alleviate a ceiling that's been imposed by China on prices globally. And we could see an inflation impact that exceeds just the mechanical calculation of which goods we currently import from China and
1: how much those prices might change. Well, I think uh, added to your point on the overestimate, you could also point out the fact that for a lot of the goods, China's the only producer out there actually. So when you start to uh, impose tariffs on them or uh, affect trade there, you are by definition affecting the low-price producer. Um, so I think your, your point is, is definitely um, valid there. But I think either way, I still come back to if you were going to start a trade war, if you thought that there were long-term gains you were going to get from this, at a point when the U.S. economy is just surging and firing on all cylinders, when you have this um, – Further uh, uh, fiscal expansion still in the pipeline. And remember, yes, the Fed is raising rates uh, in this cycle. They still see rates as accommodative. Uh, Financial conditions actually still haven't tightened that much. And they're likely to look through what they see as a one-off inflation shock, focus more on, on the trend. I think actually this is about as good a time as you could possibly ask for to start a trade war, if that's your aim. All right. I think as well, we need to look at more than the short-term costs. Uh,
0: These mechanical calculations are very much about the immediate response. In the medium term, I think we should expect investment by U.S. corporations uh, to decline. The uncertainty around how a trade war eventually resolves would be enough to slow investment growth um, and that will have medium term implications. Um, If the trade tensions subside and we go back to business as usual, then maybe that's uh, also a a temporary effect. But if uh, the trade tensions prove to be more permanent and barriers are raised either with one or several trading partners, the longer term effects on the U.S. economy could be meaningful as well. Companies may need to rebuild global supply chains that were now rendered obsolete by higher tariffs that they have spent literally decades building as we've integrated as a global economy um, and reinvesting to rebuild existing capacity to adjust for an artificial barrier like a tariff is is a very inefficient path towards growth. And I think that could impose longer term costs, too. We'd effectively have to invest just to rebuild our existing productive capacity, never mind investing to grow from here.
1: Well, you know that I have a long-term interest in economic history. So let me, no pun intended, trump your extension of the term of our uh, analysis and focus here to a much longer-term perspective and think about where did U.S. trade policy come from, this this uh, push that the U.S. has had for literally 70, actually you could even take this back 80 years, to be the leader uh, in the global economy in pushing towards lower and lower tariff barriers. It comes from the Roosevelt administration and its belief that you would actually promote peace and stability out there by increasing interlinkages among economies. And the best way to do that was – through increased global trade. And so starting with the Roosevelt administration and really continuing through the Cold War um, with the Eisenhower administration and beyond, there was a real push to cement the sort of free world together um, with increased trade where the U.S. effectively bribed other countries to lower their tariff barriers by lowering its own even more. There was also, by the way, a simultaneous commercial interest that the US faced there in the sense that as the dominant global economy, uh, it actually had more to gain from the expansion of overall global trade than it lost from free riders on that policy. So again, it had an incentive to bribe other countries into this. I think what's happened here is we've seen that those policies have been so successful that they've actually undermined their own bases and have perhaps shifted U.S. incentives in a different direction. And in that sense, you know, the president may not be the driver of these policies, this policy shift we're seeing but rather the reflection of this policy shift. So think about the incentive on the commercial side. We're increasingly getting to a world where trade is – fully integrated. For much of the post-crisis period, we've actually seen that trade as a share of global GDP has flatlined where it had been growing dramatically in previous decades. When you look at big trade deals like TPP and TTIP, if you look at the overall estimated gain from those trade relationships, they're shockingly small. In both cases, uh, economists Estimated 15-year gains on the order for TTIP, it was 0.4% of GDP. For TPP, TPP, it was 0.2% of GDP. I'm not talking per year. I'm talking cumulative over 15 years. I'm not even sure that pays for the lawyers' fees. So you know you're not getting that much out of it. And then from a national security perspective, we also have we've seen that. Increasingly, the great national security threat the U.S. seems to be seeing is the transfer of technology, especially for dual-use technologies, things that can be used in both civilian and military applications – to other countries as the U.S. has outsourced its production into other other countries. And this is not a uh, specific issue to the President Trump. We see this in Congress. You know, the uh, bipartisan backlash against his willingness to deal on ZTE because of these technology transfer issues was, I think, an important one, that these are underlying trends, not a specific policy of this president.
0: Now, I, I think it is true that – Let's take the commercial side first. It is true that uh we have s- seemingly plateaued in the increase in trade so for example, trade as a percentage of GDP globally uh has been very steady over the past sort of eight to ten years after decades of of growing much rap- more rapidly than GDP um. Uh, it's also true that aggregate tariffs, which fell for for o- over many of those decades, have also largely stabilized and 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 stopped falling. Um, so I think uh, it's it's certainly not obvious that there is a lot of further gains to be had from continuing our old policies. But that doesn't mean that the losses from undoing those policies are similarly small. Uh, I think that it's possible that we have an asymmetric case where further liberalized trade does us relatively little good, but further constrained trade actually is quite costly. And I'll give one area where it could be costly. Take the issue of productivity growth. Uh, Productivity growth in the U.S. has been surprisingly low uh, throughout this expansion. Um, It's been a puzzle for a lot of economists. It's a major factor behind – slow wage growth in the US. Um, And uh, it's hard for me to imagine that high trade barriers, higher trade barriers, which cause us to onshore a bunch of activity that is almost surely more efficiently done offshore is the path towards greater productivity. So for example, onshoring manufacturing toasters, right? Something like that. Uh, a, a, A consumer good that's Uh, probably hasn't been produced in the U.S. for decades, that's really hard to imagine that that's the path towards greater productivity. We've clearly chosen services and the highest part of the value chain in manufacturing as being our comparative advantage and and our focus. And the risk around higher trade barriers is that we shift that focus from the the highest value parts of the economy to having to re-onshore a bunch of lower value-add parts of the economy, and the, the 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 victim of that would be what meager productivity growth we have had.
1: Jeff, I really agree with you on the productivity point, and I think it's one of the ones that is most important for thinking about the medium-term consequences of uh, for markets here in terms of if you do have lower productivity growth as the result of uh, less trade. Uh, we are going to see lower real interest rates globally. We're going to see less profit growth. Uh, so equity prices should price in in less of that. And indeed, if those productivity uh, growth is, is associated with differentials across different countries because of stage of development or because Uh, Of uh, um, differences in their own trade policies, uh, you could imagine that's going to have significant and lasting foreign exchange effects. But I think to some extent, looking at this through the lens of purely economic efficiency might be a mistake. It's not clear to me that that is a sustainable equilibrium. We have to remember that we live in a world of political economy, right? Um, So we've written a lot about what we've called the politics of rage, this backlash against the center-right right, center-left consensus uh, that has promoted uh, global free trade. Part of that reason has been that we've seen uh, not just the evidence that we've done, but there's been academic evidence out there showing that individual communities um, have faced much higher transition costs to trade uh, than economists had estimated, and that has created a political backlash. And so it may be the case that politically, this is not feasible. I also think you can't discount this idea that national security is a real issue here. And in fact, a lot of the tension between Uh, The U.S. and China over these tariffs is actually focused on these technology transfer issues, on intellectual property and on who's going to control the next generation of technologies, Um, which, by the way, has a feedback into productivity growth. Uh, And that's something that you can see is potentially – the battle that the U.S. is fighting here is over who is going to have that productivity growth, who is going to produce the next generation of these things. So you're right. It's not an economically efficient outcome, but I'm not clear that the alternative is politically sustainable.
0: I guess I worry that we have chosen, we're choosing between uh, two extremes, which is the pure economic efficiency and Leave the losers in that uh, equilibrium to sort of fend for themselves, versus choosing a clear, clearly less efficient outcome, and uh, and you know maybe onshoring some jobs that were technically more efficiently done done elsewhere. To me, those those jobs are unlikely to be long term, uh, you know, paths towards the middle class. They would be obvious candidates to be automated, for example, because uh, it was already the case that uh, producing those goods with U.S. workers was inefficient. And so you would, you would think it's it, it would be hard to imagine those being sustainable long-term jobs that we would be bringing back. That something seemed to have failed in the transition where the losers in the globalization were left to fend for themselves. And our solution is to undo the globalization as opposed to figure out paths to equip the losers in that transition to actually succeed in the economy that we created in the U.S. And I I worry that although the political issues you raise are valid, that we're defaulting to two suboptimal solutions as opposed to finding some middle ground where we can maintain the efficiencies, but also maybe protect against some of those transition costs that um, that you rightly point out.
1: Well, I think this is an area where we clearly have strong agreement. I share your worries that we could be headed towards a bad equilibrium uh, here. So if you go back and take that point about the U.S. in the past having a commercial interest in expanding trade – even at the cost of its terms of trade, that was because it was the largest global economy and it gained so much from it. When you move to a world where you actually have three large trading blocks that are roughly equal, which is what we have right now, the um, aggregate size of the Chinese economy, the US economy, and the EU are roughly the same, then you actually move into a world where there's a much greater risk of... Uh, a bad equilibrium in terms of the prisoner's dilemma. Everybody chooses the wrong option here and everybody goes for higher tariffs. I think that's a real risk that we face and we should be preparing for that in in markets because the background incentives, as I mentioned, are aligning that direction. But I do think that ultimately uh, these three trading partners are going to see at some point that the costs are going to be significant enough that they will have to back off from this, and you will see a broader reduction in tariffs after you go through some sort of painful process. So I think we need to take uh, our, our, our lumps first before we get to a good place, unfortunately.
0: Well, absent a change in the U.S. administration, um, the, the good place that you talk about will require more reciprocal trade agreements— which is effectively like saying the trade war ends when President Trump wins it. Quite possibly, yes, Jeff. We've presented two sides of this issue to give you a better sense of the possible short term and long term effects of recent U.S. trade policy changes. Clients can read our latest in depth report on this topic in Trading Places on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at Barclays.com/ib.